We are in Revelation 20 again this morning. We're going to be in Revelation 20 for at least another couple weeks yet. If you missed last week's sermon, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. I gave you last week a brief overview of the three different millennial positions. Premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial. These are the different schools of thought within Christian theology about how we ought to understand the thousand years or the millennium which is mentioned repeatedly in Revelation chapter 20. As promised, we're going to take a closer look at each of these three beginning this morning with premillennialism. I've already told you that I've shifted myself over the last few years from postmillennialism to amillennialism. So you know where I am on the question. But I'm still going to do my best today to give premillennialism a fair shake. And my research for this morning is drawn entirely from premillennial writers themselves articulating their own position rather than from postmillennials or amillennials articulating what they suppose premillennialists believe. So when I quote anyone today, you may assume that they themselves are premillennial. As I mentioned to you last week, it's important for us, it is important for us to understand these various views and to try to discern what the Bible teaches about the millennium. I'm not saying it's an unimportant issue. However, it is also important for us, and I explained this at length last week, it is also important for us to do theological triage, so to speak, and not treat this subject, which is called eschatology, the study of the last things, not treat eschatology with the same urgency and gravity with which we may treat, for example, the atonement. And as I was sort of joking with you, but only half joking with you last week, I would encourage us all to be, what I was saying last week, hyphenated pan-millennials. Pan-millennialism, of course, being the uh, joke that it will all pan out in the end. I would encourage us to just put things in proportion, and if you are premillennial, to be a pan-millennial premillennial. If you're post-millennial, to be a pan-millennial post-millennial. If you're all-millennial, to be a pan-millennial all-millennial. We have a glorious shared hope, those of us who fall into any of the three camps, which is that truly Jesus will come back, and in all seriousness, all jokes aside, it will all pan out in the end. So let us keep the appropriate emphasis on what unites us rather than what distinguishes us one from another. And let us be quick to affirm this shared eschatological hope that we all have. Now with all that in mind, uh, that was covered at length last Sunday morning. With all that in mind, let me give you a brief definition of premillennialism as we are endeavoring to look at that particularly this morning. This is Craig Blomberg, quote, Premillennialism is the conviction that the second coming, or parousia, which is the Greek word, if you're ever reading on this subject, you're going to see that come up. Premillennialism is the conviction that the second coming, or parousia, will occur before the millennium. The thousand years depicted in Revelation 20, during which believers from all eras reign with Christ, a golden age of peace and happiness in human history, 
that foreshadows the perfection of the new heavens and new earth of Revelation 21 and 22, even if stopping a little short of it. End quote. And here's an additional distinguishing feature of premillennialism from Craig Glazing, not to be confused with Craig Blomberg. Premillennialists believe that when Jesus comes, he will raise the dead in two stages. First, he will raise some to participate with him in the millennial kingdom. After the millennium, the thousand year period is over, he will raise the rest of the dead and institute final judgment. Then will come the final and eternal destinies of the saved and the lost. These future expectations are common to all premillennialists. End quote. So in premillennialism, Jesus comes back and raises believers from the dead to reign with him on earth for a thousand years. After which time, Jesus raises the rest of the dead and the general judgment takes place. And only then does humanity enter the eternal state. So Jesus' return is before the millennium in premillennialism, hence the prefix pre in premillennialism. Now, I'd like to point out some esteemed proponents of millennialism, or sorry, of premillennialism. In other words, respectable people that have held premillennialism over the years. And coming first in this list is Justin Martyr, and by his description, a near universal majority of the early church. Here's a quote from Martyr, writing in 135 AD. That's not 1135, that's 135 AD. So we're talking like 40 years after Revelation was written. Quote, I and every other completely orthodox Christian feel certain that there will be a resurrection of the flesh followed by a thousand years in the rebuilt, embellished, and enlarged city of Jerusalem as was announced by the prophets Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the others. End quote. So while the early church was certainly not correct about everything, this citation proves that premillennialism is not some Johnny-come-lately doctrine with no historical basis or pedigree, but was almost a standard feature of basic Christianity in the early church, at least in Justin Martyr's estimation. Next up, and obviously this is just a sampling, there's tons. But next up we have Charles Spurgeon, who de-emphasized eschatology in his preaching ministry beyond what, what we might call a pan-millennial hope. But it is clear from the times that he did speak on the subject that Spurgeon was indeed a premillennialist. Here are two conclusive quotes. Some think that this descent of the Lord will be post-millennial, that is, after the thousand years of his reign. I cannot think so. I conceive that the advent will be premillennial, that he will come first, and then will come the millennium as the result of his personal reign upon the earth. And, he says, if I read the scriptures aright, there are to be two resurrections, and the first will be the resurrection of the righteous, for it is written, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. End quote. 
And then the third party observer makes the following observation about Spurgeon's eschatology. He says, at the height of the downgrade controversy, Spurgeon and several others created and signed a statement of faith to state the doctrines that distinguished them from those in the Baptist Union who were on the downgrade. In 1891, the Sword and Trowel published the statement, nearly half of which dealt with the inspiration and authority of the scriptures. But it closed with the final point, our hope is in the personal premillennial return of the Lord Jesus in glory. End quote. So it is very clear that Spurgeon was in fact a premillennialist. Likewise, John Gill, one of Spurgeon's predecessors, the name of the church has changed several times over the years, but John Gill pastored the church that Spurgeon eventually pastored prior, obviously a couple generations prior to when Spurgeon himself was there. And John Gill is well known and respected as a Reformed Baptist stalwart, and he was a committed premillennialist. <clears throat> now moving along the spectrum, away from covenant theology, and in more so into the direction of dispensationalism, we can add John MacArthur to the list, who is a self-proclaimed, quote, leaky dispensationalist, end quote. Here's an unambiguous statement from MacArthur. If you interpret prophetic truth in the same normal, natural way that you interpret all the rest of the passages in Scripture, you're going to end up a premillennialist. It's inevitable. End quote. And of course we have our eminent, full-blown dispensational theologians such as Schofield, Ryrie, Wolford, and too many to name or count. Dispensationalism, which is chock full of wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, is unequivocally and universally premillennial. It's, it's part of what dispensationalism is. And lastly, just a personal anecdote. One of my former co-pastors at a previous church, and no, I'm not talking about Chris Powell. One of my former co-pastors was and is a convinced premillennialist. In fact, he's a dispensational premillennialist, and I continue to have tremendous respect for him, and we share a mutual love one for another. So it is clear... I think even just from this brief survey, that premillennialism is a valid option in terms of orthodox eschatology with a pedigree of many godly men and women who have subscribed to it over the years, ever since the early church. At this point, however, it would be prudent for me to point out that there are two distinct versions of premillennialism. One is called historic premillennialism, which would have been the early church's variety, as well as John Gill's and Charles Spurgeon's. The other is what is called dispensational premillennialism. Let us now consider some of the variations between historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. First, dispensational premillennialism makes a sharp distinction between Israel and the church, which historic premillennialism does not. Ryrie, a dispensational premillennialist, goes so far as to say the essence of dispensationalism, then, is the distinction of Israel 
and the church. The historic premillennialists would not recognize such a strong distinction. Here is John Payne, a historic premillennialist, who says, Adherents of historic premillennialism see in Scripture a blurring of the clear distinction which lay at the heart of the dispensational version between Israel and the church. And Donald Fairbairn expands at length. Let me read you a lengthy quote from Fairbairn. How does one integrate God's promises made to Israel in the Old Testament and the hope held out to mostly Gentile Christians in the New Testament? Dispensationalism handles this integrative challenge by distinguishing sharply between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament church, and thus by arguing that the Old Testament promises and the New Testament promises, for the most part, fall into different categories. They are addressed to different groups, and thus, once God has completed His purposes for the church, He will send His Son to remove that church from the earth through the rapture, the first phase of Christ's return, and then turn His attention back to Israel during the tribulation. One cannot emphasize strongly enough that this hermeneutic is utterly foreign to the early church. The overwhelming concern of all patristic writers was to read the entire Bible as a Christian book, and in saying that he doesn't mean Christian as opposed to pagan, but he means Christian as opposed to Jewish. The overwhelming concern of all patristic writers was to, was to read the entire Bible as a Christian book, and they did so by understanding a given passage of the Old Testament in terms of either its relation to Christ, or its relation to the church, or its relation to the individual believer. When patristic writers do insist on the literal fulfillment of Old Testament promises, they also insist that the church takes part in this fulfillment. And so they make utterly no distinction between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. Thus, the hermeneutical differences between the fathers and modern dispensationalists on this point are related to theological differences in how the two groups conceive the relation between Israel and the church. End quote. So, dispensational premillennialism makes a sharp distinction between Israel and the church, which historic premillennialism does not. Next, dispensationalism tends predominantly to expect a reinstitution of the Old Testament sacrificial system, while far fewer historic premillennialists do. John Wolford, a well-respected dispensationalist who himself does argue for a reinstitution of the animal sacrifices during the millennium, writes, the literalness of the future temple and its sacrificial system, however, is not inseparable from the premillennial concept of the millennium and is not the sine qua non of millennialism. End quote. So the dispensational premillennialists tend to expect a reinstitution of the Old Testament sacrificial system, though some among their number do not, but hardly any historic premillennialists hold to such a position. Thirdly, and lastly, in terms of what I will mention this morning, dispensational premillennialism expects two phases of Christ's return. 
The first being a spiritual coming of Christ for his people, rapturing them away from the earth prior to the tribulation, or at least mid-tribulation in some models. And then a physical return of Christ to reign on the earth at the end of the tribulation period. Historic premillennialism rejects a two-phased coming of Christ as well as the rapture of the church in the way that it is conceived of in dispensational premillennialism. Here is Wolford again. Though many premillennialists believe that the Lord will come for his church before the tribulation and that the rapture is pre-tribulational, they agree that the second coming to the earth is to reign is a post-tribulational event. End quote. Historic premillennialists do not see Jesus coming spiritually for his church as being in any manner distinct from his personal return to the earth to reign. Moreover, historic premillennialists reject a concept of the rapture as taking away the saints from the earth, but historic premillennialists actually embrace rather the perspective that I've shared with you before, in which the being caught up to meet Christ in the air in 1 Thessalonians 4 is essentially going partway to meet him and then to escort him back to earth. Here's John Chrysostom preaching in A.D. 402. So again, we're going back to the early centuries of the church. Quote, If he is about to descend, on what account shall we be caught up? For the sake of honor. For when a king drives into a city, those who are in honor go out to meet him, but the condemned await the judge within. End quote. And Craig Blomberg, a modern historic premillennialist, concurs. Exegeting 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, quote, It would be amazing if Paul was not thinking of an imperial appentesis when he used that word. The large entourages that formed welcoming parties for the emperors as they traveled from one city to the next. This imagery then virtually requires that the rapture be the catching up of believers from the earth into the air to meet the Lord descending in the clouds and to escort him back to the earth in triumph. End quote. So dispensational premillennialism expects two phases of Christ's return. The first being a spiritual coming of Christ for his people, rapturing them away prior to the tribulation or mid-tribulation, depending on the model. And then a physical return of Christ at the end of the tribulation period to reign upon the earth. Historic premillennialism rejects that concept of a two-phased return of Christ, as well as the rapture of the church in the way that it is conceived of by dispensationalism. In historic premillennialism, Jesus returns just once, bodily, at the end of the tribulation, at which time the church is caught up to meet him in the air and escort him back to earth where he will reign, and then the millennium begins. So these are a few of the key differences between dispensational premillennialism and, and historic premillennialism. They're significant enough, I hope you can see, to be considered two distinguishable schools of thought and not just minor variations, which is why I'm belaboring the point to show the difference between these two models of premillennialism. 
there are significant enough differences that we could perhaps even consider them to be two different eschatological systems so that there are four rather than three. Amillennialism, postmillennialism, historic premillennialism, and dispensational premillennialism. However, I think they're similar enough that for our purposes in this little mini-series in which we're not studying all the positions exhaustively, I think we can handle them together, which is what we are doing today. So let us now consider some positives of premillennialism. First, I'd like to commend all the, um, the dispens, pardon me, not dispensation. I would like to commend the disposition. I would like to commend the disposition of all premillennialists in terms of being very serious about the very words of God and the realities described in the Bible. Not to say that all amillennials and all postmillennials are therefore not serious about the words of the Bible and the realities described in the Bible. But I would say this. There are branches of theological liberalism which use postmillennialism as a rubric for social action stemming from a false social gospel which is less centered around atonement and more centered around supposedly building the kingdom of Christ through our words and our deeds. This would be the sort of language that you hear when you hear people say, you know, we're not really all about doctrine and we don't really get hung up on like debating about the atonement and stuff like that. We just want to follow Jesus and build his kingdom. That's the sort of language that you might hear coming from some of those circles. And post-millennialism happens to be a construct that, at least to some extent, can justify and fit with their skewed social gospel. Likewise, there are theological liberals who appreciate amillennialism's, eh, amillennialism's denial of any sort of golden age that we might call a millennium and the spiritual fulfillment of the images portrayed in Revelation 20. These theological liberals might go even further and spiritualize away things like bodily resurrection. So for them, the the hermeneutic of allowing for spiritual fulfillment in some cases is essentially a golden opportunity for them to push an understanding of spiritual fulfillment in all cases, leading to nonsense, like I heard an Anglican priest say once, the feeding of the 5,000 is really a story which is supposed to teach us about the miracle of sharing and generosity. Right? And so there is a, there is a theological liberalism which wants to deny literalism, supernaturalism in terms of what is purported and spiritualize everything in the Bible and end up squarely in liberalism. So, again, not all post-millennials and amillennials are theological liberals. Far from it, as we will see over the next couple of weeks. However, I think all theological liberals would have to be either post-millennial or amillennial if anything, if they subscribe to any sort of millennialism. 
because theological liberalism, by definition, would not allow for the tenets of premillennialism. In other words, if you believe in a spiritual return of Christ for those who have been saved by grace through faith, in order to rapture them up and either take them away from the tribulation or for them to meet Christ in the air and return to earth where Christ will reign, and then you believe in a bodily return of Christ to reign upon the earth in fulfillment of literal Old Testament or literal fulfillment of Old Testament promises to throw the beast, the false prophet and the dragon into the lake of fire if you believe in all of those things I would say that that by definition is not theological liberalism theological liberalism does not allow for biblical inerrancy down to the very words and literal fulfillment of supernatural promises and supernatural realities like resurrection and angels and demons, etc. So if you're a premillennialist, you're a biblical inerrantist, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and and you, you, by definition, you believe in salvation by grace through faith and that Christ will return bodily to reign upon the earth and so on and so forth. So by definition, well, it is conceivable that premillennialists could be in error, the nature of their error is never the error of theological liberalism, but would by definition have to be something else. There is no such thing as a premillennial theological liberal, it, at least in my reading and lived experience. I would, that, would, that would not compute for me how that would even be possible. And this stems from a disposition towards the Bible. Note this, common to many amillennialists and postmillennialists also. But this stems from a disposition towards the Bible, which is an indispensable mark of all premillennialists. And that is something that is commendable. The second thing that I would mention as being commendable about premillennialism is the premillennial conception of eschatology as necessarily incorporating earthly realities. Let me explain to you what I mean. If you read an Old Testament passage like Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25, would you expect an entirely spiritual and heavenly fulfillment, or would you expect at least some level of earthly fulfillment? Listen as I read and consider that question. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. 
and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Reading and listening to that, wouldn't you expect at least some level of earthly fulfillment? Premillennialism says, yes, that passage must be fulfilled in some earthly sense, at least at some level. The early church thus understood earthly realities and earthly blessedness to be an important part of eschatology. Consider these words of Irenaeus, the early church father. Quote, Since there are real men, so must there also be a real establishment, by which he means a physical world. That they vanish not away among non-existent things, but progress among those which have an actual existence. For neither is the substance nor the essence of the creation annihilated, for faithful and true is he who established it, but the fashion of the world passes away. 1 Corinthians 7.31 So an earthly blessedness, an earthly reality, an earthly hope was an important part of the early church's eschatology. However, due to the influence of Plato's philosophy, whether properly interpreted or not is besides the point for our purposes today, but due to the influence of Plato's philosophy, either in terms of what he meant or how some people read him, some people began to think, as they interacted with Plato's work, that there is a purer and better immaterial plane of existence and that the material world is a lesser plane of existence, the way that a shadow is a lesser thing than whatever form it reflects. Eventually, Christians ran with this idea and started thinking of heaven as that perfect immaterial place where one day we will escape from our bodies which hold us back and we will go. Then when we get to immaterial heaven, we will be living on that superior plane of existence. Craig Blazing explains that the view of eschatology that dominated the early church prior to the popularization of a platonic understanding was what we might call the new creation model of eternal life. He explains, quote, that the new creation model expects that the ontological order and scope of eternal life is essentially continuous with that of present earthly life, except for the absence of sin and death. Essentially, the hope of God's people from the beginning was not the escape from the body, but rather the redemption and resurrection of the body. Nor was the hope of God's people the escape from earth, but rather the redemption and renewal of the earth. But as Platonic thought was incorporated into and popularized in Christian theology, uh, in the Christian theology of heaven, 
by men like Origen and Augustine particularly. Origen not being a good guy to read, by the way. Um, nevertheless, very influential. As Platonic thought was incorporated into and popularized in Christian theology of heaven by men like Origen and Augustine, this new creation model gave way to what we might call the spiritual vision model of eschatology, in which the Christian hope took on a different shape. Blazing expands, quote, In the spiritual vision model of eternity, heaven is the highest level of ontological reality. It is the realm of spirit as opposed to base matter. This is the destiny of the saved who will exist in that non-earthly spiritual place as spiritual beings engaged eternally in spiritual activity. End quote. Now, as this pertains to our purposes today, premillennialism rightly emphasizes that the spiritual vision model of eschatology, if true, would fail to incorporate the fulfillment of Old Testament promises such as we found in Isaiah 65, which speak of eschatology in very earthly ways. Therefore, premillennialists reason, the millennium is a necessary stage in the fulfillment of God's promises so that the earthly things promised to Israel can be fulfilled on earth. Dispensational premillennialists and historic premillennialists might not agree about all the details of the millennium and how exactly they fulfill God's promises, but premillennialists rightly emphasize, rightly emphasize that the spiritual vision model, which has profoundly impacted the church ever since Augustine, is inadequate for explaining how God is going to fulfill the earthly purposes or pardon me, the earthly promises that he made throughout the Old Testament. This is another commendable aspect of premillennialism. For the sake of time, I'll leave commendable aspects of premillennialism at that. I'm not trying to say that those are the exhaustive or only two. But let me leave those at that, two significant ones. And let us move now to briefly consider the biblical basis of premillennialism. As I have just explained... Premillennialism is rooted in an understanding that the Old Testament promises must incorporate earthly fulfillment into their ultimate fulfillment, at least to some extent. Premillennialism is convinced that we cannot simply spiritualize all the earthly realities described in the Old Testament promises, like what I read for you a few moments ago from Isaiah 65, 17 25, which seem to necessitate some kind of earthly fulfillment. Passages like this are a large part of the biblical basis for premillennialism. And for premillennialists, Isaiah 65, 17-25, which is that same passage that I read for you a couple moments ago, passages like that in particular, and that passage in particular, necessitates the millennial reign of Christ prior to the eternal state. This is because it describes the new heavens and the new earth as being a place in which people still die. Consider Isaiah 65 and verse 20, which says, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days, 
For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Blazing explains. Isaiah 65, 17-25 describes the new world of the eschatological kingdom, a condition of joy and great blessing. But curiously, death still remains a feature in that world order. Isaiah 25, however, in no uncertain terms, predicts a reign of God in which death will be abolished. Accordingly, although the millennial kingdom that John envisioned will see some of the dead raised to reign with Christ, death itself will not be completely abolished until after the millennium has passed. In other words, this is me now, not Craig Blazing. Some of the descriptions in Old Test- of the last things in Old Testament prophecy contain elements of ongoing sin and death amidst great blessedness, whereas others unequivocally deny the ongoing presence of sin and death. The way premillennialists harmonize these things is to allow for ongoing sin and death during the millennial reign of Christ, but to insist on the abolition of sin and death at the end of the millennium and prior to the eternal state. So Old Testament prophecies form a large part of the biblical basis for premillennialism, especially those like Isaiah 65 and verse 20, which posit a time of great blessedness in the new heavens and new earth, subsequent to or consequent to the day of the Lord, in which, nevertheless, sin and death still exist. And of course, speaking about the biblical basis for premillennialism, we should also look at, surprise, Revelation 20, which is understood by premillennialists in a very straightforward way. Turn there in your Bibles. Uh, in premillennialism, Revelation 20 does not start a new cycle. In the view of premillennialists, Revelation 20 rather continues where Revelation 19 left off. The beast and the false prophet have already been thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation 19 and verse 20. But the dragon, Satan, hasn't been and won't be until Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. And so the millennium happens in between Christ's return, then the millennium, and then the final defeat of Satan. At Christ's return, as described in Revelation 19, there is a decisive victory. And then there is a millennium of blessedness, at the outset of which the saints are raised to reign with Christ. Look at chapter 20 and verse... Four, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and so forth, down to the end of verse 4. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. During this thousand year reign, Satan is bound. Look at verse 2. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So Satan is bound. The saints are raised to reign with Christ. And then at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released 
This is in verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And there will be a great rebellion led by a released Satan, who is then, at that time, fully and finally defeated, and the eternal state is ushered in. So I think that's pretty straightforward. That's just a very straightforward reading of Revelation 20. And that's how premillennialists take it. That's how we, how we do that chapter. So though there are variations between dispensational premillennialism and historic premillennialism, and even within each camp, there are variations. Nevertheless, these are the basic contours of premillennial eschatology. I'm not going to labor at length to dispute premillennialism this morning or undo it, as I've already made the point. Premillennialism is a legitimate and valid orthodox option. But I'm just going to point in a few directions of why I personally am not a premillennialist. We don't have time to get into all of this thoroughly this morning. But there are tenets of premillennialism that I believe are incompatible with the biblical data concerning the last things. Namely, premillennialists, by definition, believe the following things. First, premillennialists necessarily believe that death and sin are not eradicated upon the return of Christ, for people still die during the millennium, and the millennium ends with a rebellion against Christ's reign. I do not believe that this is compatible with what the Bible tells us will happen at the return of Christ. Second, premillennialists necessarily believe that there are two resurrections. You remember Spurgeon's quote from earlier. Those of the saints, the resurrection of the saints at the outset of the millennia, and then the resurrection of the rest at the end of the millennium. Again, this is not compatible with the concept of a general resurrection of both the just and the unjust at the same time, which is what I believe the Bible teaches. Thirdly, premillennialists necessarily believe that the final judgment does not happen at the return of Christ, but rather happens at the end of the millennium. If we read on in Revelation 20, we see the great white throne judgment after the millennium. Again, I do not believe that this is this postponed general judgment a thousand years after the return of Christ is compatible with what the Bible tells us will happen at the return of Christ. So, positively stated, I believe that the return of Christ occasions a number of things. I believe that the return of Christ occasions the eradication of sin and death. I believe that the return of Christ occasions the resurrection of the just and the unjust at that time. And I believe that the return of Christ occasions the final judgment in which everybody is raised to their eternal state, whether it be heaven or hell, to use those categories. Hence, I am not a premillennialist. That being said, I know that some of you are. And I hope that I've done sufficient justice to this position today 
such that you feel understood and respected. Moreover, I hope that the rest of you who are not premillennialists can see that there is most importantly, A, a plausible biblical basis for premillennialism. B, that there are a plethora of respectable Christians throughout history who have held premillennialism. And thirdly, that premillennialism is well within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. And so we may gladly welcome and fellowship as friends, brothers in Christ, and fellow members of the same church with those who hold premillennial positions. Sometimes we fear what we don't know. And so if you're not familiar with another eschatological system, and someone starts talking about things that you've never heard before, sometimes it can just feel alarming. And part of what I want to do in taking a deep dive into all three of these things is to show you, even if, obviously they can't all be correct, so even if there's error on the part of one or another, this is not something that needs to divide us here at CRBC. Moreover, while our confessional standards would preclude dispensational premillennialists from being officers in our church, it is widely accepted in reform circles that historical premillennialism is either, in some people's view, within the bounds of the confession, or in other people's view, would be an allowable exception. So while confessional boundaries may preclude at least some from being office bearers in our church, some premillennialists from being office bearers in our church, our standards would not necessarily preclude all premillennialists from holding office in this church. So, like, I'm the one always preaching to you, and I'm the one always teaching you stuff, and I'm the one who's preaching on these millennial views this time. And so, obviously, there's a sense in which, as much as I try to be fair-handed, the reality is that I'm inevitably going to try to lead you and shepherd you in one direction. But it should be known that this is not necessarily the Reformed Baptist way, right? Or the CRBC way, the only CRBC way. So there's a little bit of brief theological triage, as I was saying last week, that we ought to do as we work our way through this little millennial sub-study. So in conclusion, and in a truly pan-millennial spirit, let me emphasize that we all believe, or at least we all ought to believe, irrespective of our millennial positions, that Jesus really will return, and that Jesus will reign upon the earth, whether that is in the millennium and or in the eternal state, we may not all agree. But what a glorious hope we do have that Jesus shall reign where the sun does its successive journeys run.